This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Laszlo Montgomery here, China History Podcast with part two of the Thai Chinese. We're still deep in the Ayutthaya Kingdom. We saw last time the fortunes of the ethnic Chinese living in Thailand rose and fell with the political winds that sometimes blew in conflicting directions in the kingdom. You can't tell the story of the Chinese of Ayutthaya without the Thai history that goes along with it. At this time, 17th, 18th century, the Chinese, Khmer, Malay, Lao, and Mon made up the bulk of the non-Thai ethnic communities. Last time in part one, I may have gone overboard with my oversimplification of the earliest beginnings of the nascent Siamese state. I may have given short shrift to the Indian influence. These Indianized kingdoms like the Khmer and the Mon, who were historically, culturally, and linguistically more tied to India than anywhere, well, they had a very big early influence in Siam during the kingdom that preceded Ayutthaya, that being the Sukhothai, 1238-1438. The earliest Chinese to sail to Siam, that we know of at least, who started planting roots there, came during this Sukhothai period. That was contemporaneous with the Southern Song, Yuan, and early Ming dynasties. Well, we sort of jumped all over the place in part one. Hope nobody got carsick. There was so much going on by this time in the world, 16th to 18th centuries. Not like BCE, always digging for scraps of information. I'm trying not to stray too far from the topic of the Thai Chinese, but it's been a slipperier slope than I expected. We know about the impact of certain upheavals that happened during the Yuan, Ming, and Qing that did much to stoke the fires of migration during certain decades. Cantonese, Chaochonese, Hakkas, Hokkien, Hokchu, Hainanese, over and over, we keep hearing these same names. Whenever early Chinese immigration happened, it was always these geographically favorably placed communities defined by their linguistic groups, who were the most fearless of all and more than willing to roll the dice and sail off to some destination in Nanyang and to so many other locations as well. And like I mentioned last time, no one knows for sure why, but in Thailand, the way it ended up was that more than half of all Chinese who migrated there came from the Chaoshan region, the easternmost counties of Guangdong province. Remember from that History of the Diojus episode, Chaoshan, Chaozhou, and Shantou. I mentioned the story of Lin Daoqian last time and the legend that claimed this former South Seas pirate was the first one who, well, after settling down in Patani in southern Thailand, not far from the border with Malaysia, he was the one who first sent out the call to the people back in the home villages of Chaozhou, where he came from, to come out and be part of what was happening in this far west portion of Nanyang. And don't forget, during the Ming and Qing, the emperor kept initiating these Haichin prohibitions that declared upon pain of death Chinese citizens could not engage in any private trade. 
had to leave the coastal areas, and above all, were prohibited from leaving China. In fact, the Da Qing Liu Li, the great Qing code, the legal code for the Qing Empire, oh, it spelled out quite clearly how these overseas Chinese were to be treated. Quote, all officers of government, soldiers, and private citizens who clandestinely proceed to sea to trade or who remove to foreign islands for the purpose of inhabiting or cultivating the same shall be punished according to the law against communicating with rebels and enemies and consequently suffer death by being beheaded. The governors of cities of the second and third orders shall likewise be beheaded when found guilty of combining with or conniving at the conduct of such persons. Nevertheless, the neglect of such officers shall be pardoned if they afterwards succeed in securing the offender and bringing them to condign punishment. End quote. In the early 18th century, it was common for the Qing government to call on foreign governments to send overseas Chinese back to China where they could be executed upon repatriation. We saw how Chinese got a nice head start on the Europeans as far as Siam-China trade and transportation was concerned. There was an intense competition between the major trading nations, especially with respect to the Dutch. And besides the competition, all sides had to deal with the centuries-old scourge of piracy. The Thai Chinese, they didn't have a standing army or a navy to defend themselves, so with each successive upheaval or coronation, they had to hang on tight and pull out all the stops to remain in the good graces of the ruler and his court. From one king of Siam to the next, the fortunes of the ethnic Chinese always hung in the balance. We closed off last time with King Narai, Narai the Great, known for, among other things, his affinity for the French and all the advice they gave him. But Narai was overthrown in the Siamese Revolution, 1688, all mentioned last time. And we could pick up right here with the accession of the new king of Ayutthaya, Petracha. He ruled 1688 to 1703, still the Kangxi Emperor over in China. He's not going anywhere till 1722. Whereas King Narai was very outward-looking and tried to utilize the French as his instruments to internationalize the kingdom and increase trade opportunities, King Petracha, on the other hand, he wasn't that type of leader and had a deep distrust of foreigners, especially the ones from far away. As far as the fortunes of the ethnic Chinese in Siam... They really got to have a very prosperous run under King Petracha. There was a perfect storm of good fortune happening that allowed these Ayutthaya Chinese merchants to have themselves some profitable and mostly trouble-free years. With the sea ban having only been recently rescinded in 1684, it meant you didn't have to do the whole tribute trade thing anymore. Now it was all market-driven with professionals handling the supply chain from beginning to end without the overhead of a tribute mission. 1688, bad year for the European traders doing business in Siam. They were asked to leave. Except for the Dutch, they got to stay, but not for long. They eventually threw in the towel, and though they had lasted long and prospered, they knew where they weren't welcome. So you could see, with all these European trading nations giving up for the time being, the Ayutthaya Chinese pretty much got to enjoy it all to themselves. And one of the many things we remember about the 15-year reign of King Petracha was the explosion of Chinese trade and the positive impact it had on the 
Siamese economy. It was no different from today in one respect. The markets of Siam were filled to the brim with Chinese manufactured products of all kinds, not just tea, silk, and porcelain. They didn't have all the nice stuff we have today in our time, but three, four hundred years ago, as far as foodstuffs, medicines, daily use articles, household items, made in China was as big a brand back then as it is now. And Siam, the hot products they exported to the luxury markets of China were tin, aromatics, wild animals, ornaments, and a lot of wood. And Ayutthaya itself, with easy access to the Indian Ocean and the South China Sea, became like a sort of a, a Dubai, a regional trading entrepot dealing with all the biggest regional markets. By this time in the early Qing, there wasn't a nation or corporation who could carry out foreign trade in these South China and Nanyang Seas as efficiently, expeditiously, and most of all, cheaper than the Chinese traders of Guangdong and Fujian. This backyard was their specialty. 1699 to 1701 saw a political crisis at the Siamese court. This was known as the Korat Rebellion. This alleged plot against King Petracha led to a purge at the very top of the nobility food chain and filled their places with more loyal, albeit inexperienced, officials. Poor King Petracha, practically from the moment he made himself king, had to deal with rebellions and other challenges to his rule. And in 1703, just a few years later, King Petracha died suddenly. A common malady back in those times. And if you think his royal passing set off a succession crisis, you are correct. At this time, the early 18th century, the ethnic Chinese had become indispensable to the monarchy. And to the whole country, really. Just as this modern Thai state was only just starting to emerge. Their mastery and managing and maximizing the benefits of trade and keeping the wheels of commerce running smooth and without interruption was critical to the booming economy that made King Petracha's reign most lively. After six years of the wicked and cruel King Surin Yentarati, 1703-1709, another notable period of China-Siam trade occurred under King Taisa. What a friend of the Chinese faction at court he was. Taisa reigned 1709-1733. Kangxi's Haijin Sea Ban of 1718-1729 happened on his watch. There was one man who rose to prominence during the reign of King Taisa. I searched hard to find his name, but it seems the history books have mostly referred to him as the Chinese Fraklang, or Chaopraya Fraklang. The Fraklang Ministry in Siam handled the royal treasury, all foreign trade, and foreign relations, which made him the American equivalent of Secretary of Treasury, State, and Commerce. The Fraklang was a very powerful position and always had the king's royal heir. And in this position, the Fraklang was also entrusted with the administration and management of the royal trade monopoly something the king cared about a great deal because it kept the treasury full. And King Taisa's Chinese Fraklang was quite a man, very respected and esteemed by his peers, gifted and capable in a myriad of ways, and did he ever know how to please the Kangxi Emperor and manage the delicate matter of Siam-China trade. 
The Chinese Frog Long, as King Taisa's favorite, was able to use his position at court to, well, bring enough ethnic Chinese into positions of authority to the extent that, well, it led to the emergence of this Chinese faction that, well, as you can guess, was the subject of a lot of ire with many at court, particularly the local ties, and all Europeans down to the last man. And when a particularly nasty famine hit China in 1722, the Yongzheng Emperor cut a very lucrative trade deal with King Taisa's Chinese froclong that saw Siamese rice, something they had in rich abundance, exported to China in the form of tribute mission trade that was allowed to be imported duty-free. And Yongzheng decreed any ships originating in Siam that were carrying rice Eh, sort of got carte blanche, life-saving for China and most lucrative for the Ayutthaya state. And Siamese rice shipped to ports in Guangzhou, Xiamen, and Ningbo became the linchpin of China trade throughout the 1720s. And this win-win state of affairs kept China-Siam relations in a good place. This Chinese froclong was loved by the king as if he were his own brother. And thanks to this cushy position at court, the ethnic Chinese, for now at least, didn't have to be looking over their shoulders or watching their backs. Though no one was patting the Chinese on the back, all this prosperity that came about in the 1720s as a result of this uptick in China trade, well, aside from the diplomatic and commercial benefits, it also began to lead to both a centralization of authority at the Siam court in Ayutthaya, away from the nobles, and in the direction of the government ministries. Politically, Siam was changing from a collection of city-states, such as Ayutthaya, to a larger, more centralized state. Let me quote from what a uh, Dutch East India Company said in 1716 regarding the position of the Chinese in Siam. This man worked for their Ligor office. This is the town of Nakansi Tamarit. This was his take on the kingdom of Siam. Quote, Firstly, one must know that the Siamese kingdom is presently not as populous as 25 or 30 years ago, because it has been visited often by mortality and famine. One must add to this the internal unrest which occurred often during the reigns of the three latest kings, which were caused by the kings giving power to the leading ministers in order to establish themselves better on the throne. Many of the best people are oppressed and exhausted, and a multitude have taken flight, and settled in the surrounding lands and kingdoms, whence the troubles in the uplands often stem. In the meantime, the Chinese have, in order to obtain positions, done their utmost to further their policy with a liberal hand, and insinuated themselves into this kingdom, so that at present they have in their control the best and the most prominent positions at the court, as well as in the provinces. This began in the year 1700, when King Petracha, the grandfather to the present king, installed for the first time a Chinese froclong. End quote. And this veteran of the Dutch East India Company for more than two decades said even in the provinces, Chinese had gained a measure of power and authority that belied their numbers. A lot of individual narratives made it down to our day. The Dutch documented their experiences in Southeast Asia quite thoroughly, and no question about it, they had a very... Heated competition with the Chinese in Siam, and I'm sure elsewhere too. And the lack of amity they expressed in their books, letters, and other documents, 
demonstrates a very clear frustration and animosity directed at the Chinese traders and residents of Siam. The ethnic Chinese of Ayutthaya, unlike in the case of other Far Eastern trading nations, China for example, thoroughly outmaneuvered the European traders to the extent that the future European colonial powers were never were never able to establish a beachhead or create some sort of international settlement in Siam. There's an argument that suggests that this inability for the Europeans to leap over the barriers to entry created by the Thai Chinese impacted the direction that Thai history took. And it very well may have prevented the humiliation of European colonization or exploitation that happened elsewhere. And when King Taisa died in 1733, one of the most brutal succession struggles Siam had ever seen broke out. This one was practically a civil war. And the one who emerged on top in the end was King Taisa's brother, remembered as King Borumakot. His lengthy reign from 1733 to 1758 saw the final hurrah for the Ayutthaya kingdom. Time was running out for them. Anyone who wanted to point an accusing finger at the minority Thai Chinese and claim that, going back to Petracha, mid-17th century, ever since they started running the Fraklong ministry, they had used their position of power and authority to create a rather one-sided playing field that allowed their community, more than any other, to thrive and prosper. Regardless of how well the system may have worked, it was perceived as... Well, not exactly fair, even though it was sanctioned by the king himself. Well, people knew better than to speak up while King Taisa was alive. And for this reason, the Thai Chinese had little to worry about. But under King Barumakot, eh, they encountered a very deadly reversal in their fortunes. There was a backlash, indeed. King Taisa's Chinese Fraklong was murdered in a particularly brutal manner, meeting his end in a Buddhist temple where he had sought refuge. Besides the Fraklong, who served as the head of the Ayutian Chinese community, many Kunnang, or nobles, also came to a bad end and had their numbers drastically reduced. Those who identified as ethnic Chinese in Siam, eh, they took it on the chin. Like with the Jews elsewhere, this community knew From time to time, these kinds of things happened, and there was nothing they can do with their inferior numbers to fight back. Most just laid low and figured they'd wait it out until everything returned to a semblance of normalcy, which always happened. And King Borumakot kept Chinese in positions where they were the best choice, and he saw no reason to shoot himself in the royal foot, as long as they worked for him and weren't part of the previous faction. As far as he was concerned, these were his Chinese, and they were left alone. But very soon into King Barumakot's reign, 1734, some in the Ayutian Chinese community banded together and rose up against some of the repression they were feeling. And this was known as the Naikai Rebellion, 1734. When the king was out of town on business, the conspirators rose up, declared an end to Barumakot's rule, and plopped a more Chinese-friendly king on the throne. And in matters like this, word travels fast. And such a provocative act like this, as you might expect, drew quite a ferocious response. Not all ethnic Chinese in Siam sided with the faction who was trying to seize back power from 
King Barumakot. And particularly for this reason, because of the lack of widespread support across the majority of the ethnic Chinese community in Siam, the Naikai Rebellion did not succeed. After the Naikai Rebellion was put down, you can bet there was a good old-fashioned, organized persecution of the perpetrators. Even Chinese who were not associated with the Fra Klang or court politics decided not to take any chances and fled Siam for Cambodia and Vietnam. And as I said, bad news travels fast, and in no time at all, the newly crowned Qianlong Emperor got wind of what was happening in faraway Siam. All this persecution directed at his peoples, well, as you might expect, he wasn't amused. And when King Barumakot tried to make nice and get the Qing ruler to look the other way and not pay attention to all the blood and gore that followed the Naikai Rebellion, he was most strongly rebuffed. As we've seen in part one and now, enjoying the favor of the Chinese emperor didn't make or break a faraway monarch, but even in the 18th century, being in China's good graces was still a wonderful legitimizer, and having access to that China market to sell your kingdom's bounty did wonders for the treasury. And thence, the king of Siam's ability to be so generous with the people and his closest political supporters. After inheriting all that the Xunzhou, Kangxi, and Yongcheng emperors were able to bequeath upon him, the Qianlong emperor got to enjoy a nice, long, prosperous few decades resting on the laurels of his father, grandfather, and great-grandfather. And one of the consequences of all this magnificent 17th and 18th century prosperity came increases in the Chinese population. And with such sharp increases in the population, they could never get enough of that nice Thai jasmine rice. And so by 1736 or so, diplomatically speaking, the Qing court decided to let bygones be bygones, and trade resumed and was as brisk as it ever was. And all that Thai rice served as the foundation to Siam-China trade and relations. Siam's rice The tin, woods, aromatics, these were some of the most high-volume commodities in demand, not only in China, but in other regional markets as well. And after the death of King Barumakot's chief minister, who was no fan of the Chinese and was their greatest antagonizer, well, for the remainder of King Barumakot's reign, ending in 1758, it was back to business as usual for the Ayutian Chinese, And most of the good fortune they enjoyed prior to 1734 was restored. Well, what else can I say except the kingdom of Ayutthaya that was emerging slowly into the kingdom of Thailand that we know and love today. They had enjoyed a nice century and a half, more or less, of peace and prosperity. That's a good thing, of course, but militarily speaking, they grew a little soft. And their next-door neighbor to the west, the Burmese... Well, they never forgot what happened in 1592 when they had to abandon the battlefield following the death of their crown prince. Now they were back, back with a vengeance, with the dangerous warrior king Alongpuya on the throne, bent on revenge. He was one of Burma's greatest kings, founded a dynasty, unified the country, and at the tail end of 1759, he brought the fight to Siam. He landed his army in the south and 
began working his way north towards Ayutthaya. By April the following year, 1760, King Alongpuya's Burmese army reached the capital of Siam, and Ayutthaya found itself under siege. And then once again, a miracle. King Alongpuya died just as the siege was beginning. The Siamese historians say a cannon malfunctioned and exploded near King Alongpuya, taking his life instantly. If you read the Burmese version of events, he died of disease or something much less ignoble. Whatever the case, the kingdom of Ayutthaya dodged a major bullet. The two sons of Alongpuya fought it out for the kingship with the older brother, Nongzaoji, winning out. But this king of Burma wasn't too long-lasting and spent the better part of his three years dealing with internal rebellions in Burma. And after his death, his younger brother got his chance to be king. And this was the one who went back and finished off the Ayutthaya kingdom once and for all. This next Burmese ruler, Sinjushin, he was a chip off the old block and even more of a warrior than his father, Alongpuya. He's remembered for two things mainly. First was his war with Ayutthaya, and, and the other thing he's even more regaled for, in Burma anyway, was his defense of Burma from the Chinese army sent by the Qianlong Emperor. To make a long story short, the Siamese army was in no shape to take on this battle-hardened king at the peak of his powers. In 1764, he went back and attacked Ayutthaya, and after two years of ravaging the kingdom... The Burmese armies converged on the capital of Ayutthaya, home back then to around a million people. 1765 to 1767, the Burmese army just decimated the central plain of Siam, just destroyed it. What followed in the wake of this take-no-prisoners war was famine, disease, and depopulation. Foreigners in Siam knew this was going to come to a bad end, and they started heading for the exits. King Sinjushin was willing to settle for a lot less, but seeing the sorry state of affairs the kingdom was in and how demoralized and undisciplined the army had become with officers pleading for mercy, well, seeing all this, Sinjushin decided to go for all the marbles and take everything for his Burmese kingdom. The siege of Ayutthaya was pretty brutal as sieges go. And on April 7th, 1767, the city walls were breached and the city was captured. And what followed was wholesale slaughter. The ruling class suffered a gruesome end, executed or captured. And something else, well, the Burmese, after thoroughly destroying this 416-year-old kingdom, pulled a Carthage on Ayutthaya. Just as Scipio Africanus Emilianus did in 146 BCE, following the Third Punic War, Ayutthaya was ripped up by the roots with the expectation that never would it rise again, at least not for the foreseeable future. And all the records and artifacts, the art, the splendor of Ayutthaya's past, everything was destroyed in the final conquest of the kingdom. So horrific was the destruction of Ayutthaya, it opened the door later on for a city to the south of then no great significance, also located on the Chao Praia, to rise up and become the new preeminent city in Siam and the seat of the monarchy. This, of course, being the 
city of Bangkok. So with the destruction of the Ayutthaya noble class, what we'll see for the first time is the rise of commoners to positions of power and authority. And in the next episode, we will look at a certain governor of Tak province, northeast of Bangkok, on the border with Burma, who was not noble, and in fact, half-ethnic Chinese, who fought in this conflict and survived the Burmese onslaught to fight another day, and we'll look at him next episode. I haven't tried to hit anyone up in a couple episodes, but I will in this one. Like most podcasters, I don't like begging you for financial support, laying a big guilt trip on you, my cherished CHP listeners. There's two ways to support the China History Podcast. Either a one-time donation of any amount to the CHP PayPal Donation Center, and of course, my Patreon page, where for three bucks or more you can become part of the elite group of listeners who keep this family-oriented program from sliding into oblivion. Links are at the show notes at the webpage at teacup.media. Okay, Toxin the Great next time, the King of Tonbury. You sure won't want to miss that. Then it's upwards and onwards and into the 19th and 20th centuries. Big influx of Chinese will arrive in Thailand and the other Southeast Asian nations as well. Not to mention, I guess, the whole rest of the world. This here's Laszlo Montgomery signing off from Los Angeles, California, home of the World Series champion, Los Angeles Dodgers. First the Lakers, now the Dodgers. My cup runneth over. Do please consider joining me next time, won't you, for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.